Welcome to the Hope Chapel Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. We currently are meeting again for in-person services and would love to have you join us if you feel comfortable. Our in-person service times are Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. You can also tune into our live stream on Sundays at 9 and 11 by going to hopechapel.org forward slash live. Good morning. Your legs feeling strong? Please stand for the reading of scripture. Long one. We're going to be reading all of John 17, so don't lock your knees. Beginning in verse 1. I'm going to try and read this slowly. I'm going to try. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me. And I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory, 
that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Amen. Take a seat. How you doing, Francie? We doing good? Okay. I've been spending a lot of time at Home Depot, and I hate it. Oh, man, I hate it. I hate when I have to drive over there and walk around that giant store and not know what anything is in the store. I don't know how to fix the problem I have. I find like a random employee who doesn't really know a ton more than me, and that's, that's saying a lot. They could make a Home Depot with just fake tools that aren't for anything, and I wouldn't know. I'd walk around. It'd be the same. And um, what they're not doing is like that, right? Like they're not just throwing a bunch of shapes and components together hoping that whatever they have will fix whatever problem you have. Like every tool has a specific purpose. You see what I'm saying? Like I, I can't screw uh, something in with a paintbrush. Or like I need a screwdriver for that or, or, or what are these called? A, what is this? A drill gun? I got one. I don't know what it's called. Yeah. Like every tool has a specific purpose. It's designed for a specific thing. It's meant to do a specific thing. And there's hundreds of them, maybe even thousands of them, inside this store. What is like the chief purpose of human beings? Who knows? Good, to glorify God. You guys may have heard of the Shorter Catechism. This is not itself the Bible. It's a helpful summary of like biblical belief. Um, and the very first question in the Shorter Catechism is this. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Unlike a tool uh, that can sit dormant in a drawer or in a garage for years on end, human beings cannot refrain from carrying out the means of their purpose. And what I mean is this. You will always be glorifying something. Without exception. You can't not do it. You will glorify something. You will glorify another person. You will glorify an occupation. You will glorify a future version of yourself that maybe you're excited about, you'll glorify your family, your, your kids, your dreams, whatever. Most people here today probably aren't going to glorify a, a graven image, right? It's unlikely, but there's going to be something that you glorify. Human beings are just built this way. We want to find something as highly exalted. We want to lift something up and say that it's great. I think we, like, we get it, right? Have you ever seen something marvelous and it's instilled in you or evoked in you a sense of awe? Two or three of you? Okay. Some of you guys need to get out more. Like, Grand Canyon's like seven hours away. Go see that. Go see that. There's a famous passage I've been thinking about a lot over the last couple of days um, from, uh, from First Kings. You guys remember Elijah? You guys remember Elijah? Yes. Okay, thank you. Uh, Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament, did lots of things, but one of his most famous incidents was when he was in a showdown with the prophets of Baal. And they're not been rain for years, and they wanted rain, and there's going to be this like showdown between these false prophets and then Elijah, and there's hundreds of these false prophets, and they both build altars to call on their God to consume the altar, to light the altar on fire, and prophets of Baal go out, and they like, you know, whine and scream and 
call on their God all day long, and Elijah makes fun of them. That's in the Bible. He says, oh, maybe your God's sleeping. Maybe he's like on a trip. Maybe he's going to the bathroom. That's in the Bible. Elijah says this. And Baal's not a real God. So they uh, have their request uh, remain unanswered. And and then um, Elijah goes out and he builds an altar. And he has wood and he has stones. And he then covers it in water to make the point that this would be a really hard altar to light. And he says this. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. What happens? Fire comes down, it consumes the wood, it consumes the stones, it consumes the water that was poured over the altar. They see fire, like, fall down from heaven. And the people respond this way. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. I want to suggest that when something is truly glorious and marvelous and highly exalted, we cannot stand in indifference to it. We're going to respond to it. Our hearts are built to glorify things, to be excited about things. I think an important question to ask to understand passages like the one we have this weekend, and um, really much of the book of John and much of the Bible, is, is to say, what is uh, glory? What does it mean for something to be glorious? When we say that, that we want to glorify God, or God has glory, or Jesus has glory, what do we mean? In the Old Testament, the word for glory is kavod, and it means like heaviness, means weight, like gravitas, magnitude. And in the New Testament, the word is doxa, and that means like reputation, or opinion. The idea is that there is a magnitude or heaviness or weight to the great reputation of God himself. So God is glorious just because of who he is. That's it. He was glorious before he created the world, before he made any of us. He was himself highly exalted and has always been that way. And then we glorify God when we affirm that with what we say and what we do. So we, we don't make God more glorious. All we are able to do is proclaim and affirm and assert that he is in fact glorious, of a high reputation, highly exalted. And this, this God's glory, is actually the chief concern of the Bible. So just bear with me for a second. Some people think the Bible is primarily about becoming a better person. And certainly the Bible talks about how we can live lives of obedience and faithfulness and live with integrity. And that's great, but that is not the main, that is not the chief concern of the Bible. Even something like the narrative of redemption, the gospel itself, that human beings were created without sin but rebelled against God. And now all human beings, both as descendants of Adam and Eve and in their own lives, have sinned against God and rebelled against God, and God is holy and perfect and righteous and will not put up with injustice and wickedness. And so then, a just God's wrath is meant to be poured out on rebels, on wicked enemies of God, which is us, that's how we're born. But in God's kindness, he himself becomes man, lives a perfect life in our place, dies on the cross, exhausts the wrath of God, and then grants to all who call on his name righteousness. Jesus functions as our substitute. You've that's the gospel message. You guys have heard that hopefully a lot, right? Even that is not really the chief concern of the Bible. The chief concern of the Bible 
is God's own glory. Everything else is subordinate to, but pointing to that. Still with me? So he's like, I don't know. Bear with me. Let me just show you a couple of passages from the Old Testament. And Isaiah, sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. This famous passage, in the year that, that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Let me show you one more from Exodus. When the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. We see that the Lord is also glorious when he dwells with his people. Do we want God to dwell with us? God's glory is also a major concern to John, to the writer of this gospel, because uh, when we encounter Jesus, when we see Jesus, we have seen God himself. That when we see Jesus, we see the same God who sent fire down from heaven to consume the altar that parted the Red Sea, that provided manna and, and water for the Israelites in the desert, all of those things. So when we see Jesus, we see that God, and when we see Jesus, we see a certain type of glory that points to that God. All throughout John, that's what we're seeing. In 114, and the word became flesh, and you see that word dwelt? <laughs> that's on the screen right there, you guys see that? And the word became flesh, and what? Dwelt, dwelt. that's the word for tabernacling. We're dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We can look at, at 2.11. Uh, Jesus turns water into wine. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. We read, but when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness, that is of Lazarus, does not lead to death. It is the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then in chapter 12. Nevertheless, Many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Indeed, the word for glory appears 42 times in the book of John. And it appears something like seven or eight times in our passage here. In what's often called the high priestly prayer. Uh, as I was preparing this week and reading this passage over and over again, I thought, man, this is kind of a confusing passage. When you guys read this, did you think, man, there's a lot going on here? 
like this is in this and that's and then Jesus kind of circles back around and says some of the same things in slightly different ways. And when I look at how other people dealt with this passage, they deal with it in much smaller units. <laughs> uh, James Boyce preaches this chapter in, I think, nine sermons. We're going to do it in one sermon. And it's a 9 a.m. service, so i got 40 minutes. It is the longest prayer of Jesus recorded. We see Jesus pray a few other times, and we hear that Jesus prays a lot, but this is the longest uh, prayer of Jesus recorded. It is the last long sort of monologue of Jesus as well. If you've got a red letter Bible, it's your last big block of red in John. It's sweeping. Jesus talks about him existing before the foundations of the earth. He talks about what's happened in his ministry. He talks about the future when his people will be with him and witness, see the glory that God, that he shared with the Father before the foundation of the world. He talks about how he will be lifted up. The next chapter is Jesus' arrest. And then for the next few chapters, it just appears to be the case that Jesus has been arrested. He's at the hands of evil people who want to kill him and in fact do kill him. So he says very little. It doesn't appear to be the case that he's the main agent of moving the plot forward. But we know that Jesus goes to the cross on purpose. It wasn't an accident. The people who put Jesus to death, they lift him up on a cross. What they don't know is that they are also lifting him up to his own glory. That he's going to go through a cross and he'll be raised again. And he'll be raised in glory. And, and in this prayer, I think we see a number of ways... That God is glorified. And the first is this. God is glorified in the purpose of the Son. He is glorified in the purpose of His Son. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 again. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. We ask, what is the purpose of God's Son? In verse 3, and this eternal life that they know, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Seems to be the case that the purpose of Jesus is to make God known, make God known, but not like vaguely, right? Specifically, that they know you and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Do you encounter people that believe they know God, but do not know God? Has ever happened to you? There are probably some people here today that believe they know God, but do not know God. In a group this large, that has almost certainly 
the case. I think today when I talk to people about religion, most often what I hear are sort of like vague, like sort of truths about God being the father of all humankind, which is technically true. I hear vague truths about God uh, having humankind be all one brotherhood, which is technically true. It is not enough to say that God is the father of all and all human beings are brothers and sisters. It needs to be more specific than that. Like, I can, like, look at creation and come to believe that God exists. Is that right? In fact, I can hear someone who does not believe in God tell me something about God that might be true and and come to believe that thing, and I could be right now about something about God, but I was told by someone who doesn't believe in God. Did you follow that crazy sentence? You know what I Okay. Very sorry, Francie. It has to be more specific. God, as, as he's known through his son, Jesus Christ. In, in John, people misunderstand uh, Jesus all the time. He walks around, he does his ministry, people approach him. Remember last week, Nicodemus came to Jesus, and Jesus said, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, what, so like, I got to crawl back in my mother's womb? And Jesus is like, no. Like, people misunderstand Jesus throughout the entire gospel. Even our most recent passage, the disciples are with Jesus in chapter 16, and they think they understand him, but they still don't understand him. Jesus must be understood through his words and more importantly his mission. Should we believe Jesus to be and know Jesus as a teacher? Is that true? Yeah. We should read Jesus' words and learn from them and grow in wisdom and righteousness because what he says is true. Should we know Jesus as a healer or restorer? Yeah. Can Jesus heal you? He can. And we should take some form of comfort in knowing that Jesus is able to heal people. We should pray for healing. I think it's appropriate. Neither of those two things are the primary way which we should know Jesus. The supreme way to know Jesus is not as teacher, not as healer, but as sacrifice. That's how we must know Jesus. Because to know Jesus as teacher only is not sufficient to be rescued from the wrath of God. To know Jesus as healer only is not sufficient to be rescued from the wrath of God. To know Jesus as sacrifice is to find rescue. And so John is telling this story about what Jesus has come to do and the categories he uses are kind of different than the synoptics. He has different catchwords. One word he's used over and over again is or phrase is eternal life. What's the famous eternal life phrase? <laughs> Could you all start that at different times please? <laughs> Let me show you verse 14. And as Moses was lifted up the serp- as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have what? And in the famous passage, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus talks about eternal life as salvation. Like it's his way of talking about people being saved. Um, let me show you one more in 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So we know that Jesus comes to bring eternal life. We know that if we do not find that eternal life, the wrath of God remains on us. Jesus also talks about his death in an interesting way. We can go to um, chapter 7. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus, when you see this this phrase, was not yet glorified. Show me the next one. 
Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, look at, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. We have a convergence of some themes in John that help us to understand what Jesus has come to do, the the substance of his mission. He offers eternal life, and he will be glorified, and he will be put to death. And as you're reading through John, and let's say you don't really know the ending, it's hard to understand how all those themes converge together. I think it's it's simply this. It's, It's that... Our redemption through the death of Jesus Christ is for God's glory. That actually what Jesus does glorifies God. That that the one who existed before the creation of the world with the Father, the one who actually was the agent of creation and made everything, he becomes a human being, so he descends, he humbles himself, he dies on a cross and he's raised back up. He's raised on a cross, he's raised from the tomb, he's raised to the right hand of the Father. And this profane death brings God glory. That Jesus is lifted to death and then lifted to glory so that we might be lifted from death and to glory. I want us to see that Jesus makes God known At the cross, he tells us something glorious and specific about God. He doesn't say, God is awesome, let's all believe in God. He doesn't just give them platitudes for how to live their lives. He makes God known specifically by the fact that he dies as our substitute, and that death brings glory to God. I quoted D.A. Carson last time, because man, his work on John is so good. (laughs) He says this, the hideous profanity of Golgotha means nothing less than the son's glorification. In the purpose of the Son, God is himself glorified. I want us to see the effect in in verses 7 and 8. We can read, Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in the truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. That knowing God... Seeing God at the cross is sufficient for us to believe him and to trust in him. That Jesus has set the stage for the disciples. Have they understood Jesus yet? You're like, that wasn't a clear enough question. No, they've not understood Jesus yet. They got him a little bit, but not all the way. But he's prepared them. When they see the cross, when they see the empty tomb, they are ready to understand what it is that God has done. He has glorified himself in our rescue. Secondly, God is glorified in the protection of his people. Oh, are we halfway through the notes now? 
flipping that page. In 9 through 16, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus begins this section by saying he's praying for the ones that the Father has given to him, not for the world. I think this is kind of confusing, because the very famous passage we read just like six minutes ago says, for God so loved what? The world. That he gave his only son. And the word so there doesn't mean so much. It means in this way God loved the world. That he gave his only son. In fact, I, I want to say. I'm, I'm, I'm going to try and commit to this. I think every time John uses the word world. He's referring not just to the physical location of the world. But the world in its rebellion against God. The evil system of the world. That is made up of individually evil people. And God is seeking to call people out of the world into himself, right? Into being in the Father, in the Son. And then those people remain in the physical location of the world, but no longer share in its evil ways. So God, in one sense, loves a world that is wicked. But the world is dangerous, is that right? I'll show you a couple. First John. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Other New Testament authors agree. We can go to this famous passage in Romans. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So those who have called on the name of Jesus, they're in the Father. They are now not in the world in the same way. They've been rescued from wrath. They're in some sense protected. The world is wicked and evil in certain regards. But notice this in verse 15, uh, what he says. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So we have a, I think, difficult posture towards the world. Jesus does not pray that we are delivered from the world, but that we are protected from it. So as believers, we are called to be engaged with the world, but at the same time distinct from the world. Should your life look like someone who is not a believer? One guy was like, I got it. He got it first. No. 
10 additional points to whoever that was. Because the world is the location of our mission, it's where we tell people about Jesus and disciple people and call people to repentance. But the world is dangerous. Uh, my oldest daughter has recently been asking for a phone. <laughs> and don't get me wrong, like, I want her to have a phone because I want to be able to call her and text her and track her on GPS and all that stuff, right? I'm very happy for those features of the phone. And I also know that the internet itself can provide some really good things for her. Research and connection with friends. People use the internet for accountability and discipleship and knowing even more about God. That technology has been used for great things. And there will be a time where she will have access to the internet, and assuming society doesn't collapse, right? And she'll use it for school and for work and stuff like that. Um, but the internet's also dangerous, is that right? I was trying to explain to my daughter, like, why the internet is dangerous. She's like, Dad, I use it to, like, watch videos about how to beat Mario. And I'm like, yeah, I get that. That's not dangerous. But it's dangerous, right? And so I was trying to explain, like, all right, so we have one front door to our house, right? And I always know what's on the other side of that door. Always. At all times. I know what's out there. I got a camera that shows me what's on the outside of that door. There's a kind of a guy that's a little bit crazy that rides a bicycle around our neighborhood. I know if he's there. I'm not going to open the door if he's there, right? I know exactly what's on the outside of the door. I never open the door, and it's a different neighborhood, right? Uh, but the internet is like a door to everything in the world at once. And you can open a door to good things and to bad things, and people can open doors to you. You see what I'm saying? So it's, it's dangerous. There's dangerous images, dangerous people, dangerous ideas. Almost everyone in this room at some point has gotten into a little trouble on the internet. People are like, no, not me, probably. Probably you have. And so because I'm not God and not all-powerful and don't know what's behind every door and am terrified of some weirdo getting access to any of my kids, I'm always like slapping iPads out of their hands, right? Like I'm doing everything I can to keep the internet away from them. I'm present in the room, whatever, and I will not always succeed at that task. You guys still following me? Okay. The internet is dangerous, but it's going to be an area of mission for my kids one day. And I am limiting access to that to the best of my abilities because I know how dangerous it is, but I don't know where the danger is, right? God knows everything. You still with me? God knows everything. So we're sent in or we remain in a truly dangerous place. It is actually dangerous, but we can trust that God is able to protect us because he knows what is behind every door. He's not confused. He's not concerned. He's not unknowing. There's no part of the world that he can't see right through. It, it glorifies God that he sends us into this location that is not safe, that might come with some oppression or persecution, one in which the devil is still an active power, not the power, right? Please don't walk away thinking the devil's equal to God. That's crazy. Don't think that. It's dangerous in that we're tempted to sin. And we, we will sin. And our kids will sin. And our friends will sin. But we are still protected. And, and the language is used uh, is in his name. Did you guys catch that? In his name. Uh, you used to be of the world, and now you are in his name. You got a new name tag. You got a name tag that said of the world. Take it off. You a name tag that says in his name. It's like a password. If you go to a different country and you've got an American passport, it provides some level of protection for you because people know that the weight of the American government is, to one degree or another, behind you. 
they will treat you as an American. He also says this in verse 13. I want us just to look at this for a second. Uh, he says, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that you may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Uh, are you guys joyful? <laughs> People will tell me all the time, you need to smile more. I walk around like this. <laughs> if you come up the stairs and I greet you, I'm not mad at you. This is just how my face looks. I'm not mad <laughs> And when people think about Christianity, they think about obeying God, they think of cold, robotic obedience, they think of the uh, sort of loss of joy for the sake of being righteous. But I, I want to encourage you and tell you that Christianity is not like painful, dutiful obedience. It's joyfully living the way that God has designed you to live. That you can have great joy in seeking obedience. You can have great joy in walking faithfully and righteously because God has designed you to do those things. I don't think I've ever met anyone who chose to be obedient and it did not ultimately bring them more joy. <laughs> I don't think I've ever met anyone who was disobedient and later thought, yeah, that was good. <laughs> I feel more joyful now. Like God's a good designer. He's designed us in a particular way. He tells us how to live our lives. And if we live our lives the way that he has commanded us to, I do think it brings a particular type of joy, a deeper joy than fleeting Passions of life. Thirdly, God is glorified in the preservation of his people. I'm going to read verses 17 through 23. Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me. I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. When I think of protection versus uh, preservation, I think protection is kind of this immediate thing. God will keep us safe in the world. And preservation is more about being assured forever that we'll be brought to the end. When I first started uh, at, at Biola, I was, I don't know, like 20, and I was in a class with a professor named Ken Birding. Anybody know who Ken Birding is? You guys should. Just one guy, okay. Well, he's not here, so uh, he's a nerdy guy. He's a real, real, real dorky guy, but he's very lovable. And um, he said this thing in class that I don't think I'll ever forget. He said, so many Christians consider how they're going to be obedient right now. Not many of them consider what it will be like to obey Jesus 80 years from now. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Um, that the way I think about my obedience should be over a longer time frame than right now. How will I persist in obedience? And ultimately, I believe that God is the one who enables you to persist in your obedience. He provides you the tools, the energy, and the power to obey him and preserve to 
the end. And Jesus even says here, he's not even just talking about his disciples anymore. He's talking about everyone that the Father has given to him. And he really, I think, offers two ways in which our holiness is protected and we are preserved all the way to the end. And the first way is what he says in, I think it's verse 17. I lost my place. i got to go back. Verse 17. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So the good God-given means of growing in holiness and knowing more about God and living a life of greater obedience is by the word of God. That shouldn't surprise you. We've said it many, many times here that we believe the word brings life. I'm going to show you a passage I, I really love that conveys the richness of God's word. The psalmist says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great what? I think the reward, one of them, is that we grow in holiness. We grow in obedience. I meet guys trying to find themselves, and they go out to the desert and take hallucinogenics, and they're like, and they hear from God. I'm like, you don't have to endanger yourself that way. I've got a much safer way to hear from God for you. I will give you a free copy of it. I think we can casually say and say to each other that we believe the word of God, we believe the Bible's true. Most people here are probably not wondering whether or not the Bible really is true. If you are, please come speak to me or any of the elders up front afterwards. We're happy to talk to you. At the same time, however, it's like easy to distrust the Bible. Does anyone identify with that at all? Oh, just me. Okay. It's be a confession session. When I was at Long Beach State, I had a philosophy professor, uh, philosophy professor at a secular school, um, but the secret about this philosophy professor is that he was a Christian, and so I think he delighted in teaching philosophy at a secular school, and he was uh, like a real Christian, not just like a, I, I say I'm a Christian, but he's like, he, he's like a go to church, read his Bible, believe in Jesus Christian, and he was talking about objective truth one day, and uh, for, for a while, one of the predominant views in the philosophical world was that there really was not objective truth. You guys ever heard this before, that truth only exists in your mind? that uh, it's subjective, that each person has their own understanding of the truth. And that's really not a dominant view in philosophy, philosophy anymore. I think you might encounter people that are maybe not philosophy majors that might still believe that, but it's not common. So we're in this class, and the guy says, yes, truth is objective. Uh, there is an actual external truth to you. It exists outside of you. And a student raised his hand and said, I get it, right? Like, that makes sense. We, we agree that that's a podium and that's a whiteboard. And if I choose to not believe that's a podium, it's not just a different truth, it's incorrect. The teacher's like, that's right. And the student goes, but like not with religion, right? He's like, like you believe what you want about God, I'll believe what I want. They're both true. And the professor was like, that's ridiculous. That's stupid. He was a Christian. He wasn't super nice. And, and the student, student was like, what do you mean? And he's like, I mean that if you believe one thing about God and I believe the opposite, one of us is right and one of us is wrong. And he's like, wait, wait, what are you saying? Like one religion's true? And he's like, yeah. Or they're all false. One religion is true, or they're all false. Your choice. And the student sat down. He was just like, like someone had just punched him in the face. He was like, what? Like, so it matters what I believe about God? I can't just, like, make up my own stuff? People say, live your truth. You ever heard that? Next time you get pulled over. 
I would just live my truth. Listen, I think sometimes people say that phrase as a means of encouragement, and there are probably contexts where you can say something like that to someone, and it might not be a damaging thing to say. But be careful, because to convey that truth is not objective is a problem. Here's the thing, though. There really is only one truth, and that truth is God's truth, that, that God actually created the world and made it a certain way, and everything he tells us in his word about the world is true, and we can trust it. Even then, though, like, even if you believe that, sometimes, right? Like, I made Legos as a kid, and they came in, like, little booklets that you flip through, and you go each step, you know what I'm saying? And if I, every time I got to a new step, was like, I wonder if Lego's lying to me about this step. I'm not sure, Lego. Like, I, I will sometimes read the Bible that way. When God tells me to be gracious or merciful or patient, and I read and I think, but not in this case, right? <laughs> One of the means of preservation for us uh, to grow in holiness, to become more like God, to persist to the end by the power of God is through his word. The second is uh, unity. I'm going to read you verses 22 and 23. He says, The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. We're approaching Trinitarian theology, that God exists eternally as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Son is talking about how there is mutual love between Him and the Father, and we learn also between Him and the Father and and the Spirit. And that love coexisted and pre-existed all of creation. I lose anybody with that. Okay. I'm always scared to talk about Trinitarian theology. I don't want to accidentally do a heresy in front of everyone. Jesus is saying that the unity that he had with the Father before anything was created at all should be reflected in the unity of his people. The high bar, right? (laughs) Like there's people right now that you don't feel super unified with. I get it. I think one way to think about this is that the New Testament assumes, assumes that Christians gather together in an assembly regularly. It assumes that we do what we're doing right now. That is the assumption. That Christians live in a world that was hostile to them. Far more hostile than our world is to us right now. And so they gathered together in unity to study the word, to fellowship, to baptize, to break bread. And this was a means of reflecting the unity that God had in himself before the creation of the world. That when we come together and are unified, we reflect God's glory. We say something true about God. An implication of that is if if your regular habit is not to gather together with other saints, if you're not here often, if you're live streaming right now and the rest of your life is normal, and you've not returned here, if that's true for you, you are denying yourself a means of grace that is assumed in the Bible. And you are denying yourself this opportunity to reflect the glory of God by assembling together with the saints. Here's the thing. Uh, I think right now life is pretty easy for us. I know there's individuals in here that that's not true for, but I'm saying, like, if I want to buy ground beef, I can do it no matter what. Do you see what I'm saying? I have Wi-Fi at my house I can go get gas if I need to. 
if I can afford gas. <laughs> I don't go to the store and it's barren, right? I don't drive home worried I'm going to be like mugged or shot or robbed. I'm not worried about bands of violent men running around the street. You still with me? I'm also not worried that people are going to beat me up because I'm a Christian. I'm not worried about that. If you're worried about that, you probably don't need to be too worried about that. But that may not always be the case. Like for us to gather together in unity as a church, as saints, to encourage each other and point forward to God's perfect future and point back to what God has done is a powerful way for us to be preserved to the end and to glorify God. God is glorified in the preservation of his people. Amen? Lastly, God is glorified in the perfection of his people. I just want to read 24 through 26 again. Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. What's Jesus' desire here? What does he want? He wants his people to be brought where he is to witness the glory that he had with the Father before the foundation of the earth. This is John's way of saying That he wants God's people to be perfected and brought to the end where they can dwell with God in God's space. To be brought through the ups and downs of life. To be brought through sin and suffering and sickness and death, even death. To be brought through the terror of temptation, through discord and strife. He desires his people to be brought through in the end to witness him, to dwell with him. Because In that place, when we see with their eyes the glory that Jesus, the Son, had with the Father before the foundations of the world, the deepest longings of our hearts will actually be met. Remember, we are meant to glorify things. And so we're welcomed in the end to glorify Jesus face to face. When I lived in uh, Scotland, I'd have to walk home in the rain all the time. Kind of reminded me of that these last few feels like decades now. Zach, if you're, if you're watching, stop praying for rain, please. <laughs> I can't take any more. Prayers of a righteous man, bring rain. And I, I found a way to be indoors on my walk home. I'd walk through the train station, and I'd walk through the bus station, and I'd walk through the mall. I, like, slowly figured out this route to stay out of the cold, sideways, windy rain, right? I didn't have good rain gear, so I'd be, like, soaked wet. Last half mile, always outside. There was no bus station, train station, no way to get home without just walking through rain. And I would, like, look ahead to the apartment we lived in that I knew was warm and dry. And I just wanted to get there so bad. You guys see the metaphor that I'm drawing not very clever, but I think you get it. Everyone's been on a long road trip, and that last hour, you're like, come on. <laughs> Let me show you 14, 1 through 4, something Jesus says. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Jesus, uh, as we're told in John and elsewhere, is the one who built the universe. Is that right? He built the universe, then for a time, he built tables or other things that craftsmen build in his earthly ministry. And he is also, the builder of the universe, built a place for you if you've called on his name. You'll be brought through the cares of this life. And you can believe that's true because God's perfection of his people brings glory to God. If it brings glory to God, God will do it. I believe it's true because Jesus prayed this. Jesus said that he wants his own to see him, the glory he had with before the Father, to be with him. Do you think Jesus' prayers get answered? I think so. Amen? Father, we thank you for uh, today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for how amazing everyone was with the time change showing up. Pray that you continue to bless us and grow us and protect us. Pray that we continue to dive more deeply into your word. Consider the riches therein. Pray for us as a church that you would continue to unify us and that our unity as a church would not be cheaply bought, but rest in the unity that you had in yourself before the creation of the world. We pray all these things in the great name of your son, Jesus. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.